I got green juice, cucumber, celery, apple. If I want a little sweeter, I might use a pineapple. Green juice, all this deliciousness. Hey, fresh cruciferous, got me feeling magnificent. I got green juice, cucumber, celery, apple. If I want a little sweeter, I might use a pineapple. Green juice. Hello, this is Dominic here with Gardovia Gardens, and you're joining us on the Growing Our Future podcast. Today on the show, we have Dr. Benjamin Meal with the University of the Incarnate Word and Jonathan Molyneux with the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration joining us for a talk on ecosystem services. Hello, thanks for having me. The USDA describes ecosystem services as the direct and indirect benefits that the environment provides humans. These are things such as agri-ecosystems, rangelands, and forests all provide a suite of ecosystem services that support and sustain human livelihoods. Jonathan, we understand you're working in the Office of Protected Resources at NOAA who are taking substantial efforts in protecting our environment. What insights can you share with our listeners about the step processes your office undergoes to ensure healthy ecosystems? Hi, everybody. My name is Jonathan Molyneux. I am a fisheries biologist with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, as Dom had mentioned. I work primarily on Section 7 of the Endangered Species Act. Whenever a federal agency takes part in a project that could potentially harm or harass endangered or threatened species, they would have to come to our office to get what's called a consultation. Basically, any project that could affect a species in in any way, federal agencies are are required under that provision of the statute to consult with our agency. And we write up what's called either a biological opinion or a letter of concurrence assessing the project. We assess the, the stressors that could potentially occur. To the species, we either say go about what with what you're doing. You know, the project's not going to affect the species really in any way, or the project's going to affect the species in X, Y, and Z. We recommend that you either do these conservation measures, or we actually may require them to do what's called reasonable and prudent measures, which consists of specific best management practices or mitigation measures that will reduce what we call take on a species, either harming or harassing would would result in take, so reducing that harm or harassment. Thank you for that introduction, Jonathan, and the great efforts you and your office are taking at NOAA to protect our resources. Joining us today is Dr. Benjamin Meal with the University of the Incarnate Word. Dr. Meal, we are grateful for your time. As a collegiate professor, you're constantly interacting with students and staff daily. As environmental educators, both Stephen and myself are continuously advocating for stewardship and preservation, utilizing school gardens as our tool. What might be some approaches you're taking with your college students to expand their environmental awareness and the many benefits the natural world provides us? Thanks for having me on and thanks to Stephen for putting all this together. I've watched a lot of the other earlier stuff. This is really great stuff today. I'm a professor of English at University of the Incarnate Word, so I kind of come at this from the other side, or a different side of the picture, talking about more humanistic approaches 
to study of the environment, kind of environmental humanities stuff. I actually have a background in Renaissance literature. I spent a lot of years studying Shakespeare, basically, but that is surprisingly good preparation for a lot of the topics that we discuss in classes like eco-criticism or bioethics or other environmental humanities classes. There's a very long history of, at least in America, of nature writing. A lot of people will go back to Thoreau and the Transcendentalists. We kind of talk about how nature writing can be inspiring, uh, can help us have this sort of communion with nature uh, and in psychology and sociology. They have a word for this, euteria, a sense of losing yourself in nature. I feel like recently another aspect that has been pointed out to the environmental movement, which has been predominantly uh, straight white male, is that we need to focus on how the environment can benefit people in an urban setting as well. For the most part, negative effects of the climate crisis are affecting disenfranchised communities really disproportionately. And the environmental movement, for the most part, was looking at, hey, nature's fragile, how can we preserve it? I think what we need to look at is, it's not just that nature is fragile. Human culture is far more fragile than nature. And how can we make sure that the effects of our economic growth aren't disproportionately hurting the weakest among us? And how can we transition to uh, not only an economy, but a culture that is more just and that is able to address a lot of kind of thorny issues, uh, to be kind of frank about it. We're not really going to be able to address environmental justice without addressing racial justice, class justice, or inequalities in gender. So a lot of those issues really do come together. And so when people are talking about like, what are the benefits of nature? What can we learn from nature writing? Uh, there are actually some really surprising benefits and really significant benefits for things that might seem unrelated at first. And we know it to be true. To expand on your point, Dr. Meal, the implications surrounding the climate crisis, whether it's the heat island effect, lack of tree canopy, hotter summers, colder winters, industrial or automobile pollution, these are all factors that are here and now, and they will affect less affluent communities first. It's a lingering issue of prioritization, and there are moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, and caretakers who have to choose between paying their mortgage or turning on the AC for their families in June and July. There are steps we can take right now to plan for climate resiliency through the mitigation of CO2. We here at Gardopia believe that education is one of the most important. Jonathan, in your office, are there any observations being made on the benefits of the environment as they pertain to people? Yeah, definitely. Kind of getting back to what Dr. Mail was talking about as it relates to how conservation has been looked at in the past. It's been pretty straight white male dominated, but I think that is beginning to change a bit. More so how the conservation has been looked at through the lens of having one intended outcome. You know, we've had, you know, from the, the beginning of early park system, the main idea of conserving land was we're just going to close off this area and only have these set small activities that human use that could occur in the area. I think that mindset is beginning to expand 
I think that was a more early view of conservation. And I mean, it was definitely good, but I don't think it was as holistic as it needs to be. I'm actually doing a detail right now under the National Ocean Service, under their, their sanctuaries division. And um, what we're focusing right now is we already have a way to mark off areas of what we call marine protected areas. They were established in the early 2000s. Bill Clinton actually was the the president who got it kicked off with an EO, I believe it was in, in 2000, an executive order, where he enacted a way to protect marine areas. The main focus on closing those lands off was the intention for that site had to specifically be for the conservation of biodiversity. And while that goal is noble and it's definitely what we need, I think we also have to look at conservation through the lens of, like I said, a more holistic approach and beginning to incorporate kind of the cultural values that are necessary. Because a lot of these areas that had not been marked off as being conserved, you know, we didn't include indigenous lands. We didn't include, like I said, urban areas. I, I don't think that there was a really a look on seeing ways in which urban areas could be conserved. I mean, obviously, I'm talking more about the marine environment, but just getting back to urban conservation. We've always seen conservation in, oh, I'm just going to go out into the boonies and mark off, you know, this one plot of area. And it's a very ecologically diverse area. But there are a lot of areas in our urban environments that are also that also need conservation and also have these vibrant cultures that need to be preserved. Seeing conservation through the lens of not just the biological landscape and ecosystem services, but also through cultural values. Dom, you were asking a question of, we've got these urban heat islands. What can we do about it? And there's some surprising things that we can do uh, and things that are actually already happening in San Antonio. Uh, for one, just planting more trees in certain neighborhoods has an, an just a huge impact. Urban heat islands are not evenly distributed. If you look at a map of San Antonio, uh, Incarnate Word is actually located in a place that's very dense with tree cover. Just drive down Broadway about 10 minutes. And uh, once you're in South San Antonio, that dense tree cover disappears. So without the tree cover, uh, temperatures will vary 10 to 15 degrees. So on a hot summer day, it's 10 to 15 degrees warmer in that neighborhood. It's also drier, even though it feels hot, the trees are sweating too. The trees are also pulling in moisture to help themselves. And just providing shade, also the aesthetics of it, having the tree as something that is beautiful, has a very therapeutic effect. So just planting trees in uh, these communities really has an amazing impact, and it can happen relatively quickly. San Antonio has a few programs. You know, they've got the uh, fruit tree adoption through the city, and other organizations have tree adoption as well. All of those are free, which is excellent. But I think if there was a more systematic program in place to target neighborhoods that needed it, I think that would be more helpful. And you bring up a great point about having informed decision-making. We know that there are these tree-giving programs provided by the city of San Antonio and various organizations. And you're correct, through observations, as one moves more inner city, 
the prevalence of canopy is not as robust. What we did at Gardopia is adopt out the trees that were provided to us by the Office of Parks and Recreation and using a geographic information systems program called ArcGIS, we were able to determine the homes of those trees throughout San Antonio. That was exciting to see. In particular, knowing that our headquarters is located in the east side of San Antonio, many of those trees remain here in City Council District 2. Utilizing information in order to leverage changes, in schools of thought, action, or even policy is advantageous to translate information into advocacy of resources that benefit all people, in particular with priority in communities that are marginalized or historically excluded. And this brings me to my final question. How might we show the value of nature? Stephen and I work with many youth over the San Antonio area, and we know it in our hearts but how would one be able to take these qualitative feelings or quantitative data points and translate them into something that would be beneficial for advocacy at the city council level, or maybe increase awareness for our local leaders? Excellent question. This is how I start my semester with eco-criticism. And it's a, an answer I think that has evolved over the years and I really owe a lot to Stephen because his garden-based learning initiative has really pushed me and others at UIW to think differently about how to create classroom space and how to use classroom space. I think there's a larger philosophical issue here, and I'll try to distill it down very quickly. But the larger philosophical issue is that some people think that nature can only be experienced, you know, through a harsh climb into the mountains. You have to be alone at midnight in the full moon in the woods. Uh, but then once you come back into society, it's totally different. You don't have that experience anymore. Uh, and there's kind of a dividing line between nature and culture there. This is something that goes all the way back to Plato's allegory of the cave, of course, an allegory where the person who sees the truth goes out into nature, tries to bring that nature back into society, and in a tragic and ironic twist, the plan backfires. Everybody tells him, you're lying, fake news, and they murder him. And, and that's, you know, it's not just an allegory, it's really an admonition. We need to understand rhetoric before we try to force something onto people. In psychology, the backfire effect is very well documented. And we've seen it, right? Just look at all the stuff that's happened with COVID, trying to convince people to do things for public health. Immediately, the backfire effect kicks in. I think what we really need to avoid the allegory of the cave, to avoid these past pitfalls, is a new way to think about storytelling. And that new way to uh, think about storytelling has to include a new understanding of nature. And just by switching to the plural, really, if we just talk about natures instead of nature, capital N nature in the singular, that really opens up a lot of different opportunities, a lot of different chances for buy-in from different communities. And it also doesn't make it seem like this alien, other isolated place. If we can see the natures around us as really part of our part of maintaining our livelihood, that's very important. And the final thing I'll say to talk about, you know, these new stories, these new techniques for communicating to other people, a big part of that is meeting them halfway and 
understanding that they do have a valid viewpoint, whatever that viewpoint is. I, and I really do believe that. Uh, not all of it is valid, but you have to find the validity in what they're saying and then work with that. And one of the best ways to do that is humor. Make people laugh, uh, make people uh, at ease, make them feel like we're on the same team. I think that's the best way to start. In our last minute wrap up, in speaking to communities, youth, families, individuals, and neighbors, what's that final advocacy piece of information you'd like to share with them? I actually just watched this news segment earlier today about the Mekong River in China and how they're building all these dams right now to harness electric power. And the downstream impacts from that dam are causing these massive impacts to the people downstream. Um, you know, all these small businesses, these small fishing industries. And I think just seeing value in in nature, seeing the value in everything and all services that nature provides is crucial for us to be a more sustainable human race. We can't just rule out, you know, we have to take a holistic approach to seeing the value in nature. We have to assess everything that nature is providing for us to get a better understanding on its true value. We can't just make rash decisions based on, you know, making a buck here and there. You know, we have to uh, really measure what our ecosystems are providing for us to make better informed decisions. That Mekong River example was really, it was shocking because it showed just how several economic decisions were creating downstream impact that was causing a much worse economic environment in these other areas. You just have like a small benefit for catastrophic loss. There needs to be more baseline measurements done for ecosystems. We need to really get at the true value of it. Dr. Meal, your final advocacy piece? Go find a garden somewhere. There's so many community gardens out there. Gardens are classrooms. Joy is so important here. We were talking about new narratives, and joy is really the central narrative that I think we need to push. Because I feel it. I'm not saying that in a cynical way or a manipulative way. When I'm in a garden, I feel that joy. I bring out my students to the gardens. They work in them. They feel the joy, too. I can't tell you how many students tell me, oh, I'm relaxed. Like, oh, I, I had a test coming up. I was super stressed, but being in the garden relaxed me. Being in the sun, getting out of Zoom, getting out of the classroom, getting off my computer screen and my phone screen, that really relaxed me. That's where all the joy is. Get in the garden, make everything a garden. That's what I would say.